Support for this podcast and the following message come from Samuel Adams. Since 1984, brewing Boston lager for over a month using only 100% heirloom hops. Glorious inefficiency in every sip. The Boston Beer Company, Boston Mass. Savor the flavor responsibly. Hey everyone, Sally Helm here. The market for art is really fickle. Something that sold for a ton of money last year might be hard to even sell at all next year. And this story from way back in 2010 explains those dynamics really well. So we are re-airing that show today. We'll have an update for you at the end where we run some numbers and tell you whether or not you should be putting all your money into sharks pickled in formaldehyde. It'll make sense later. Here's the show. This show starts with a number, and that number is 12 million. $12 million. That is how much a 15-foot shark in formaldehyde by artist Damien Hirst reportedly sold for in 2005. The title, which I love, is The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. (laughs) That title alone is worth $12 million. (laughs) Exactly. I have another slightly smaller number, $1.5 million. That is how much Eddie Saunders tried to sell his shark for. Eddie Saunders owned an electrical shop, and he said he had a shark hanging in his shop before Hearst did his shark thing. And so Saunders ran an ad saying, New Year's sale, only one million British pounds. Save five million pounds on the Damien Hearst copy. Nobody bought his shark. Um, That anecdote, by the way, comes from a book I've been reading called The $12 Million Stuffed Shark About the Art Business. And and that anecdote is sort of encapsulates what our podcast is about today. Why does one guy's stuffed shark sell for $12 million and another guy basically can't even sell his stuffed shark? Hello and welcome to the Planet Money Art Gallery. Walk around, pour yourself some wine in one of those little plastic cups. Take a look at the art. I have to say these pieces are really speaking to me, David. Uh-huh. I, I enjoy that one. The bold color, the vibrant dynamism uh-huh. of the brushstrokes. But you know the thing I like about it most? What? It's so cheap. <laughs> it's a bargain. <laughs> Today, we're going to try to figure out the answer to that question that no artist likes to discuss, price. That wonderful thing that you just created out of thin air, that you just poured your creative soul into. How much does that thing cost? Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards. Then ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Planet Money. There's a subculture of people fascinated by prime numbers. You know, like 7, 11, 13, 17, 19. Primes go on forever. There is no final biggest prime number. And the hunt for the latest monster prime number can take years. You end up with a 24 million digit long number. Ideas on the power and beauty of math on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Alex, let's start with this sound. I'm going to play you a sound. Tell me if you can guess what it is. <laughs> I identified I can barely hear it. <laughs> Come on, listen. It's an empty room. It sounds like an empty room. That's the sound of the Winkleman Art Gallery on 27th Street in Chelsea. How did I not know that? Yeah, it's, uh, it looks like an art gallery. You know, big empty room, white walls, uh, photographs hung about eight feet apart or something like that. Um, And I wanted to start the discussion here because just this week, this is unconnected with the gallery, but 
An Ansel Adams photograph of Yosemite National Park sold for $772,000. And when I visited the Winkleman Gallery, on the wall were photographs by this guy, Matthew Albanese, that looked just as dramatic. One was of this huge, ominous tornado churning across a field. Another one was of uh, a glacier in Antarctica. Another one was of a volcano. Except that Ed Winkleman, the guy who runs the gallery, said, it's not a tornado, that's not Antarctica, and that's not a volcano. He builds these models out of everyday materials in his studio. So, for example, what looks like a tornado is actually still wool. What looks like an iceberg is all made out of sugar. What looks like the volcano is uh, tiling grout. That's pretty great. Wait, let me look. Let me look closer at the tornado. Foreground it looks like grass and bushes is all made out of parsley, and they're very convincing. Alex, here, look. This is a. Oh, really? Yeah, I totally want to see these. That's the iceberg made of sugar. Oh, my God. (laughs) It looks exactly like an iceberg. That's amazing. Wow. Apparently, it's all in, like, the lighting. He sets these things up. And there are other photos where you can see him working on them in his studio. They're like little dioramas. But it's all all about the lighting, I think. Yeah, and we'll link to the the photos of these on our blog, npr.org slash money. But, Dave, I have a... You have an ugly question. I have an ugly question. Yeah. How much is that going to run me? Uh, it's $2,480, frame included. It's cheaper than Ansel Adams. And look, he probably put a lot more work into it. Yeah, that's true. But Ansel Adams is taking pictures of real stuff. <laughs> yeah, but so this guy had to make the iceberg and then take a photograph of it. That's so much harder. Yeah, but it's not a real iceberg. All right, so it's a hard question. What should this photograph cost? I asked Ed Winkleman. Can we talk about price? Yes. I'll tell you the price of anything. <laughs> My question is harder than that. It's how do you decide what price tag to put on something? Okay. So there really is a system. Don't you love it? There's a system. I love it. I can't imagine that the artists in Ed Winkleman's gallery like the fact that there's a system for pricing their art. No, he says, so he works with emerging artists, not Ansel Adams, no, people you know who aren't famous yet. And um, he says that there's always this awkward moment. You know, he'll have some new artist, really, really likes their work. And you're maybe sitting there in front of their paintings, and then you got to put a price tag on it. And the, the formula, it has very little to do with how good the art is. Okay, so it depends on the scale. The size, you mean? Yes. Like bigger costs more? Yes. <laughs> what if it's small and super detailed and beautiful? Well, the scale is one aspect. <laughs> yeah, so there's like three criteria. Scale, what I would consider intensity... As you said, if it's very small and super detailed, it took a lot more time. So scale, intensity, the third criteria is what he calls medium. In other words, what's it made of? Is the sculpture carved out of wood? Is it made of marble? And and how many copies are there? If it's a photograph and you have multiple editions of it, it's going to be less expensive. Oil paintings in general are known to be about twice as expensive per square inch over the same artist's drawings. Really? Yes. All right. So what I'm learning is if I'm an emerging artist, I want to do big oil paintings and not tiny charcoal drawings. Yeah, really, 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 really big. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he says at the end of the day, the artist decides, but this this is, you know, you can go around to galleries and they're all sort of priced similarly. Yeah. And he also told you that there's actually a minimum price as well. Yeah, there's right? sort of a minimum because, you know, as a gallery owner, he's got his own costs, right? He's got his rent. He's got his employees. He's got the wine that they serve at the opening. And he's got to make all that back. So, so what is the cheapest possible painting you can buy in New York? 
I don't know, in, in a nice neighborhood, you know, they're going to run over a thousand bucks, right? $1, you know, it's not like, you know, in a clothing store, you got tons of clothing, you got jeans <laughs> stacked up to the ceiling. Here, it's just like one piece of art and then like 10 feet, another piece of art, you know, so they're not going to be cheap. All right. Well, that that explains the prices of sort of artists that are, I guess, not well known or, or emerging, but it doesn't answer the question. The shark question. The shark question. Why? Does a shark in formaldehyde cost $12 million? Because it's awesome. (laughs) After the break, we answer the shark question. Support for NPR and the following message come from Luminary, a free new podcasting app launching this spring. Listen to the shows you love, plus a network of 40 ad-free podcasts with Luminary Premium, their subscription-based service. More at luminary.link slash planetmoney. I'm Bob Boylan, creator of the Tiny Desk Concert Series. We've just launched the 2019 Tiny Desk Contest. It's our search for the next great undiscovered artist. The winner gets to play a Tiny Desk Concert. It'll change your life. Find out more at npr.org slash contest. All right. So, yeah. So what we've talked about now is prices for, for emerging artists, where the art really is like a commodity. But after that, you know, if people start buying your art, then it's like there are a different set of economic rules that kick in. And to talk about this, I went downtown to meet with William Balmall. He's an economist at NYU. He's 88 years old, but still writing. I'm in competition with Methuselah these days. Uh, most people my age have uh, laid down their pens. However, I do remember having once attended a lecture by the noted economist A.C. Pigou, and he got up and he said, you have to realize that I am best described as an ancient squid who still continues to eject squirts of ink. And uh, I feel I qualify under that description. (laughs) (laughs) Well, William Baumol, you certainly won my heart. So one of the things Baumol has studied over the years is the economics of art. He's actually an artist himself. He used to teach sculpture. There are paintings that he's done around his office. And he occasionally actually sells one to a colleague for a few hundred bucks. But Baumol is famous on this topic for a paper he wrote called Unnatural Value or Art Investment as Floating Crap Game. <laughs> right. We got a lot of good titles in this in this podcast. Um, so we have a copy of that paper here. It's from 1985. And it's a scan of the original paper. So it's a scan of a printout from 1985. It's on dot matrix printer paper. Um, bringing back memories. I love it. Like the uh, the O's are kind of squared off and the underlining is just an underline under each letter. It's not like a long, smooth line. <laughs> Younger listeners have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> All right. So we'll get to the art investment part in a second. Um, but what Balmol says in that paper is that in some ways, it's no mystery what determines the price of art. Art's like everything else. It's supply and demand. If you're famous and you've got a line of people waiting to buy your next painting, you can charge more for that one. Or if you've got some rich guy who really wants to buy a formaldehyde shark bidding against some other rich guy who also wants the shark, you know, the price goes up to $12 million. He says what makes art different from a commodity like, you know, oil or ball bearings or rice uh, and even different from things like stocks or bonds is that with those things, you can try to calculate the price. But with art, good luck. They depend in swings in human tastes. And I am 
absolutely convinced that there is nothing about human tastes that can be called, quotes, rational. Well, I mean, except everybody knows blue is better than red. <laughs> Alex, you used to like red better than blue. <laughs> I changed my mind. Yeah, see, that's his point. Art, art depends purely on human taste. Here's something he wrote in the paper. Their prices float more or less aimlessly. <laughs> well, but it's not aimless. I mean, there is, I mean, just like there's fundamentals for stocks and bonds, you could argue there are fundamentals for art. The fundamentals are just basically what the art critics think about the art. <laughs> Instead of stock analysts. Have, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Art of art critics. critics like, art analysts in Planet Money Dragon. Uh, so, so speaking of the art analysts, as I'm going to continue to call them now, here's what one... Uh, curator slash art analyst had to say about Damien Hirst's formaldehyde shark, quote, it's brutally honest and confrontational. He draws attention to the paranoic denial of death that permeates our culture. And therefore definitely worth $12 million. Especially if you can sell it for more later. And and that is the thing you hear about a lot. You hear about record prices for art in the news. You know, there's a, there's a Picasso that sold for over $100 million. An Andy Warhol piece sold for $72 million recently at a Christie's auction. And so you hear a lot of people talking about art as an investment. Yeah, Balmol says, uh, you know, people say that all the time. You should buy art the way they say you should buy real estate or whatever. You know, it holds its value. It's a good investment. And in fact, it's better than stocks and bonds. But he says that's wrong. And I can tell you as an economist just from theory, that should not be true. So here's his economic argument. Alex, I'm going to give you a choice. You can buy a painting or you can buy a bond. And in 10 years, they're both going to grow in value and be able to sell them for the exact same amount. Which would you pay more for? Well, I guess, is the bond pretty? (laughs) No, it's a little piece of paper. Is the painting pretty? The painting's really nice. And I could hang it on my wall? You could hang it on your wall. Um... I guess I would pay more for the painting because I could hang it on my wall in the 10 years that I'm going to be keeping it before I sell it back. Right. So at the end of 10 years, they're both going to be worth the same. And you've just told me you're willing to pay more for the painting, right? So that because makes it's the pretty. Pa- that makes the painting a sort of crappy financial investment, right? You're paying more than you would for the bond, but you're getting the same amount back at the end. Right? Or it makes the bond a crappy aesthetic investment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but financially speaking... <laughs> if you don't care about art. If you don't care about that, you're just thinking about, like, I got my retirement money, where am I going to put it? You're better off always, he says, putting it in stocks and bonds than in art. At least in theory, that should, that should be true. So he wanted to test that idea. It turns out it's sort of hard to test because you need a good data set of art sales. And that's when he found the book. The book by Reitlinger... So we have it here. It's called The Economies of Taste, The Rise and Fall of the Picture Market, 1760 through 1960, by Gerald Reitlinger. And it has pages and pages of data for works of art going back several centuries, data that were kept by the leading auction houses, so, uh, so I'm looking at the book here. Rembrandt. Here's Rembrandt. All right. So Rembrandt. The painting is Old Man in a Black Hat, bought by Lord Scarsdale <laughs> in 1761 for 210 pounds. 1764. So Alex, he had a colleague type in all those numbers and statistically analyze them. Well, we found uh, exactly what had been predicted by the theory by you by me uh, 
it turns out that art was a good investment if it paid off in aesthetic benefit. But in terms of dollars, you were much better off buying stocks and bonds. Okay, so stocks and bonds are better than art, but okay, what if you bought like a Monet in 1920? Yeah, I think he's talking about a portfolio of all art or something. Yeah, I mean, if, if you happen to buy an impressionist piece during back in the day, sure, you know, you'd be rich now. But if you bought a David Roberts piece, you you would not be rich. Who? Dave Roberts. We call we call him <laughs> we call him Dave. <laughs> he was he was famous in the 1860s. So I found him on like page 300 or something of that book. Here's the quote that went along with that. In the heyday of mid-Victorian romantic taste, the watercolors of David Roberts depicting the Near East and Spain were the delight of kings. His fussy <laughs> his fussy oil paintings and interiors of churches could make close on 2,000 pounds in the sales room. But in 1933, that's 70 years after his death, uh, one of them sold for just 10 guineas, which is almost nothing. So art analysts art critics and curators are about as accurate in the long term as stock analysts, it sounds like. That was a very good short-term investment, I would say. <laughs> right, exactly. But not not something you want to buy and hold. Dave Roberts, don't buy and hold. <laughs> he could he could have a resurgence. Hey, it's Sally again, back in the present. William Baumol died in 2017. He was 95. And in the spirit of Baumol's paper, we wanted to know what would have happened if you had taken his advice. So what would have happened if you'd invested in stocks, say, instead of in a collection of art? All right. If back in 2010, you had taken $10,000 and invested it in the S&P 500 index of stocks, you would have over $28,000 now. Now, that does not include management fees, which would be small, and it doesn't include taxes. But still, it's a 180% return over nine-ish years. Not bad. Now, what about if you had taken that $10,000 and put it into art? Artprice.com has this index of art bought and sold around the world. We got the spreadsheet, we ran the numbers, and art still is not an amazing investment. According to this index of millions of sales of paintings, sculptures, drawings, your $10,000 would likely have lost money, about an 11% loss. And that's not even taking into account things like high sales commissions, storage costs. But maybe you would have liked having an iceberg made out of sugar sitting in your living room. Maybe that would have been worth it to you. We are interested in what kinds of animals you think should be pickled in formaldehyde. Email us, planetmoney at npr.org. We are also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Planet Money. Also, I want to let you know that our video series, Planet Money Shorts, is at it again. We have a new video out about fancy vodka and whether it is worth the money. Producer Alexi horowitz Gazi has a star turn. Check it out, npr.org slash planetmoneyshorts. This episode was originally reported by Alex Bloomberg and David Kestenbaum. The rerun was produced by Rachel Cohn and Darian Woods. I'm Sally Helm. Thanks for listening. 